From the Ryerson Review of Journalism, this is Pull Quotes. I'm Jacob McNair. And I'm Laura Howells. Covering an election campaign is never going to be easy. But when you throw in a populist candidate who has a history of being hostile to journalists, well, that's a whole other, now familiar, story. We are, of course, talking about Doug Ford, who's running to be Ontario's next premier. Doug Ford is a former Toronto city councillor and the brother of infamous mayor Rob Ford. The Ford brothers blustered through scandal and attacked so-called elites long before Donald Trump's rise to power. So, after Doug Ford won the Ontario PC leadership this month, comparisons to the American election were quick to follow. With voting day a few months away, we wanted to talk about how journalists should be approaching this campaign trail. Ford is running against the unpopular liberal incumbent Kathleen Wynne and the NDP under Andrea Horvath. So what does good journalism look like when Doug Ford is running for premier? And if there are going to be Doug-Donald comparisons, what lessons should journalists take from south of the border? Jacob spoke to three journalists about these questions, two of whom will be covering Doug Ford's campaign. Alison Smith, the founder and publisher of Queen's Park Today, and John Michael McGrath, a reporter for TVO covering Ontario politics and policy. We also spoke to Jennifer Pagliaro, a reporter at the Toronto Star who covered both Rob and Doug Ford during their tenure at City Hall. Thank you all so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So, uh, Jennifer, I want to start with you. You've spent a lot of time covering Doug Ford and his brother, the late Rob Ford. What's been going through your mind since Doug Ford won the progressive conservative leadership and kind of unofficially kicked off election coverage? You know, the advice that I got when I started at City Hall, which was really the tail end of the Ford administration, was A, bring running shoes. Uh, And that was kind of it. Um, There were a lot of moving scrums, we like to call them. Mm. There was a lot of running. Um, Obviously, provincial politics is a bit different, and you can see a much more um, put-together Doug Ford, I think, a much calmer Doug Ford. But what I've been telling uh, colleagues that I know who work at Queen's Park is that to cover a Ford is is sometimes to cover chaos, and there's no real roadmap for that. And so, yeah, there are all these comparisons between Doug Ford and Donald Trump. Allison, what do you make of the whole premise of this discussion? Do you think these comparisons, Ford-Trump, are useful or appropriate? I think they're impossible to avoid at this point. Mm -hmm. I will say I'm like the the Ford newbie out of this crowd. I've only been in the same room with him uh, a handful of times now because I I cover Queen's Park and, and haven't covered City Hall before. I think what we're seeing right now that interests me is a very restrained Doug Ford, it seems, up to this point in the debates during the PC leadership campaign that just went on. I mean, he said some crazy stuff, but not a lot. So it's a little bit, I mean, I think that we have the Doug Ford and and Donald Trump comparison, but the way that he's, Ford himself has been acting up to this point doesn't necessarily, if we didn't already have this this Trump that we were thinking of, maybe we wouldn't be making that because he he has been like a little bit chill. <laughs> uh, but who knows? And, and, and it'll be interesting to see where, where he goes with this because I'm assuming that's not going to last the, the whole election campaign. Well, it's also if we didn't have Doug Ford's own record. Uh, for uh, sure. If, 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 I mean, I think all of the reporters have, would agree with you that, that he's been substantially more subdued than the guy we last saw uh, at city council, but that record is still out there, and and it's 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 being tough to sort of square what 
I, I know from history versus the guy we've seen for the last month and a half, two months or so. Knowing what you know about his record, how are you approaching your own coverage right now? Have you been talking about adopting certain strategies or policies? I mean, we are doing the same thing that, certainly at TVO, we, would, we are doing the same thing that we would do with any uh, progressive conservative leader. And I think we are uh, trying to, you know, interrogate claims and, uh, you know, like, just as the obvious, for example, is that uh, Doug Ford came on the agenda after winning the uh, leadership and, and uh, you know, had a sit-down interview with Steve Pakin. And, and it's the kind of thing and the kind of questions that uh, any PC leader would have faced. I don't think, at least uh, from our point of view, I don't think we are treating this as, um, uh, you know, a, a meteor out of the blue that is, is causing us to you know, change everything. My own personal situation, you know, I, I get to write a bit more sort of opinion-y pieces for the website, and uh, I've been given a bit of space to, you know, share what I know from, uh, you know, Doug Ford's past, and, and I, you know, I got to write something for our website saying, you know, that I did not think he was the best choice for the PC leadership race. Um, and so that, you know, we'll continue to do that kind of a thing so long as, you know, we, uh, as a public broadcaster, we have to respect certain bounds about what we can and can't say as we get into the election. I was going to say it's been really tough to watch um, sort of from the sidelines as a City Hall reporter and as someone who is aware of the Ford's record, which, you know, for Doug is just a, you know, a one-term counselor. Um, you know, he was on budget committee and he was sort of Ford's, right, his brother's right-hand man. Um, and when he talks about, you know, no one else has read a budget like he has, uh, you know, I can't speak for him, but I have read every budget since I arrived at City Hall. And I can tell you that he's not telling the truth about um, the, you know, fiscal policy that he and Rob put in place uh, with that, obviously, with the approval of other city councillors. So I find it challenging that he is not being uh, tested at the Queen's Park level on some of those claims. And they're very hard to challenge on the fly in a debate scenario or just even in a one-on-one -on -one interview, because he sort of speaks boldly and loudly about uh, what he says, you know, is the best and the most, and all of these like superlative uh, adjectives for his record. And no one has really gone back and tested it. And I find myself tweeting about it, and it's it's sort of outside the realm of what I cover on a day-to-day -day basis anymore. So. I think What's there the needs to be more. What's the one billion dollar one that he always says? Yeah, he he and Rob have always claimed that they saved the city city taxpayers a billion dollars, and um, my colleague uh, Daniel Dale, who actually covers Trump now, and um, the rest of us at the bureau spent a lot of time sort of deconstructing the fact that you know they were claiming things that aren't actually savings. It's actually substantially less than what um, they say it was, and it took years until city staff who were propping up that claim for a long time actually admitted that the claim itself was misleading. Um, and that's one of the biggest lies that I think has sort of sunk into public consciousness. And it's so hard to take that back. Yeah, that's fascinating because, you know, I I see that coverage and, and I know that he's obviously lied in the past. But I think at this point of covering him at Queen's Park, is one of the things he's doing is not really saying much. Yeah. Uh, so his like tactic thus far has been to not really put forward any uh, succinct policies. 
not really like just to sort of bash the government, which is a standard opposition tactic. I mean, any PC leader would be doing the exact same thing, but he hasn't put forward a lot that that reporters can really latch onto and interrogate up, up until now. Even though he doesn't say much, he's a candidate who can demand attention and kind of uh, suck up a lot of oxygen. Mm-hmm. So um, how do you balance that media coverage so it's not just the loudest voice which gets all the headlines? I think there's a real stark difference between how, for example, like newspapers and magazines have covered uh, Doug Ford versus how I think the fear is that he's really going to thrive on television coverage. Mm-hmm. And... You know, we saw a bit of that with even uh, us at uh, TVO with the agenda. Um, you know, in a in a televised situation, it is not always easy to, you know, say, "Well, stop there, yeah. Doug." We, you know, it wasn't a billion dollars, and you know, you can't keep repeating that. In print, there's a bit more uh, ability to, you know, add the parenthetical. You know, Ford said inaccurately, or or something like that. <laughs> you know, Daniel Dale has obviously uh, spent. A year plus now documenting Donald Trump's uh, serial lies. I think the the real hope is that you know you can drive people to media that have that ability to do the real interrogation, and you know obviously you know TVO our you know our, our primary sort of vehicle is going to be the agenda and Steve Pakin. You know we're trying to to really drive our our written content on the website as well, and you know I, I think that's really the hope for a more sort of critical view of these things. Okay, I, I think there's a really great TVO example actually that we should be following, which was during the leadership debate, um, Steve Pakin had TVO's producers in his ears telling him how much airtime each candidate had already had and whether they were over their individual limit. And Steve was actually stopping them and moving on to the next candidate. And the only person he had to keep stopping was Doug. And Doug is incredible at that, at taking up all of the air in the room. And I mean, in a practical sense, in terms of any media outlet consciously thinking about the amount of airtime we are giving Doug, not to censor him, but to be cognizant of the fact that we can't just dedicate coverage to one provincial candidate. I think also if we go back to the American example and just to basically agree with you, John, that the newspapers and magazines, they mean, they spent so much time doing and they still are up until this day. They are the ones doing the critical in-depth coverage of Doug, of, sorry, of Donald Trump. <laughs> but, <laughs> the, the, well, we saw Doug Ford was in the New York Times uh, yesterday. So yes. <laughs> we call it the Fordian slip. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um so I think the I mean the point being that it doesn't matter necessarily, right? The New York Times can fa- and Daniel Dale can fact check Donald Trump all they want, but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily or at all change the public perception of him. So I think we have to be wary of that as reporters here, and I think that's what we learned in the in the Rob Ford era was no matter what you write, how true it is, or how many times you say that this person's lying, there's going to be a chunk of the population that that is okay with that or or. Likes it. Doesn't believe you. Or doesn't mm-hmm. believe you. Exactly. Yeah. Sure. Sort of picking up on Jennifer's TVO example, if our ability to fact check is kind of limited by these factors, what kinds of strategies can we adopt to at least to keep uh, balanced in our coverage and to keep focused on the real issues instead of being distracted by all of the heat maybe not so much light generated by one candidate. I mean, the, there's no substitute for just being um, self-conscious about your work and, um, you know, uh, 
my column for the website today is about a report from the Parliamentary Budget Office in Ottawa, and it's not the flashiest thing, and it doesn't mention Doug Ford even a little, um, but it's, I think, an important thing worth exploring, and, you know, the freedom that we have as a public broadcaster is that we don't need to be obsessively tracking, you know, clicks and, and uh, web traffic. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to use that that freedom when I can to start, you know, to, to get away from the circus of the election race and talk about policy where I can. I am under no illusion that I'm going to be able to keep doing that, you know, as much uh, as we get closer to election day, because the election is going to start taking on a momentum of its own. And, and I'm not serving the public in any great way if I ignore that too, right? I, I agree with John's strategy. I think it's helpful to actually, you know, we have the responsibility to write about what the actual issues are and, and not just do the day-to-day all the time. And, and it's great that John has that platform and uses it all the time. Um, I think in the actual like covering of Doug, uh, I've been to enough scrums to be concerned about sometimes the way reporters kind of come into that moment with their own story idea or, or a story that they are working on. And even though that we are competitors, you don't necessarily back each other up. So I've seen lots of examples where, you know, someone might be really challenging Doug or any politician on an issue, like because he's not answering the question, or he hasn't answered the question. And then someone chimes in with the next question that allows that person to uh, sort of save themselves from that situation. And I think that we can't do that to each other. I think it's important for the public that we, if he's not answering the question, just say that, like, you haven't answered the question. What is your answer to this question? And not give him or anyone else that out. So I think that there are also practical things you can do in that day-to-day circus. And at some point, it will be a circus. Related to that question of balance and coverage, um, moving back to the Trump comparison, it wasn't just a matter of balance. It was about um, equivalency and like dr- wh- whether or not Trump's scandals should be portrayed as equivalent to or maybe less significant than Hillary Clinton's emails. How are you thinking about taking that into account when you're covering Wynn, when you're covering Horvath and the NDP? I think that a lot of Wynn's issues uh, and problems with Kathleen Wynn have been covered to ad finitum at mm-hmm. this point. I mean, there's a laundry list uh, that of scandals that have happened under this liberal government, uh, e-health, orange. I mean, you just hear them over and over and over again. So, and I think that this is more maybe what the opposition is should be trying to do is like finding a way to get some of that to latch back on. I'm just offering unsolicited <laughs> off <of laughs> research advice right now. That's not what journalism students need. <laughs> One of the things that is that is hard to disentangle for me is that, you know, there was the the obsessive, you know, but her emails coverage of uh, Clinton. And I don't think even the people who wrote those stories look back on that with a whole bunch of pride right now. But there are legitimate issues to be critical of the Liberal government for. And I'm not saying I'm, I, I, I'm having a hard time, but I am having to sort of be thoughtful and, and be conscious of when I send out a crappy tweet about the, you know, the latest government slip up or something. And, you know, and, I, and I'm trying to be conscious of, OK, am I piling on to something for no reason? Is this a, a, a legitimate failure? How should I, you know, address this? And because I don't want to be in the position of, you know, looking back, you know, a year from now, two years from now and thinking, well, God, I really made a mountain out of a molehill on that. And there was 
that was really stupid of me. I mean, I'm an outsider on this, but, you know, having witnessed the, the Queen's Park Gallery, I think they're they're perfectly well aware of sort of the level of scandal. And I think it's the journalist's role to kind of be the, the judge of that and to try to orient the public on, like, where does e-health fall in relation to a, you know, a crack scandal or, or whatever. Like, those are two different things. Um, but I think we should also not be afraid of, you know, appearing biased. You know, for example, when we covered... Doug Ford running in the mayoral campaign, Daniel was often fact-checking those debates, and people were messaging him all the time saying, like, you're so biased, you keep pointing out how much Doug is lying, what about the other people? And it's not bi- it's not biased, it's that Doug was lying far more than the other candidates, and that was just the truth. Following up on that, to what extent is it the job of the news to drive the conversation during a campaign? Um, just to give an example, how often should journalists be asking Doug Ford about things that might not naturally come up, like his city council attendance record, or the Globe and Mail story that he was a hashish dealer in the 1980s, which of course I should add he is strongly denied and for which he has never been officially charged. But how often should journalists be bringing this up when it isn't coming up naturally in the political conversation? I think we saw with a round of interviews Doug Ford did on uh, CBC a couple weeks ago, and that was brought up, that sort of the the result of that was hostility on his part um, towards the journalist. And then, you know, the interview is like a little bit going off off the rails. And that's not a reason not to ask the question, uh, of course, but at the same time, if you know that he's just going to give the same answer, is there is there any value in, you know, going through the hashish thing again? I, I don't know. I think it's probably more important at this point to try to get him to answer a substantial question about but how he intends to run a government, which I think is which is the job he's applying for in this election and has a lot of there's a lot of questions to be answered there. And we've seen his sort of lack of, of policy expertise at the debates. And, you know, maybe he is seems to sort of like pride himself in that a little bit. But I think that that is what Ontarians need to know about him moving forward. We already we already know that he might have sold a little hashish. <laughs> I feel like Doug Ford is like alleged drug dealer and Doug Ford as city councillor are kind of two different things. I agree that like he's always going to say the same thing about the Globe story. But in the interviews I listen to, he keeps raising uh, his record and his importance at City Hall as sort of his um, resume for this job. It's the only political office he's ever held. So I think it's appropriate to continue to challenge him on what he says about those aspects of his career and they're I think they're pretty well documented not just by the star but by but the entire city hall press gallery well and I think the in terms of like you know the some of the slogans that have followed uh Doug Ford around uh one of the the ones that I would say is is really relevant to his uh, potential future as a as an MPP and as a potentially a premier is the story about Waterfront Toronto you know it has become you know shorthanded as this joke about Ferris wheels and monorails um but Doug Ford inserted himself into a policy process that it quickly became clear that he didn't really know what he was doing <laughs> and he he um just very quickly, I'll just try to give some background here. This was in 2011. Um, uh, Doug Ford, uh, as basically acting as his, his brother's right hand, um, 
started meddling in the Waterfront Toronto process that had been going on for a decade, had, I guess, a billion dollars from all levels of government. He had like Australian developers in their office to like talking about all these fancy things. And this this was, you know, the whole point to the Waterfront Toronto process was that it was sort of poking along and it was working quietly after 30 years of the Portlands being this kind of desolate post-industrial wasteland. And Doug Ford started blowing it all up. And because he didn't understand the politics, because he didn't understand the policy, it was really Rob Ford's first major political defeat as mayor. And council ended up voting heavily to basically, you know, slap Doug on the wrist and tell him never to touch waterfront again. <laughs> and um, they they more or less reasserted the the, the 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 prior status quo. And as I say, since then it has become this joke about uh, Doug Ford wanted to build Ferris wheels and, and monorails in in the the waterfront. How silly is that? But I think the more fundamental question is, you know, does Doug Ford understand? the complexity of certain policy files and does he understand, uh, can he work in the political process to get the policy results he wants? I haven't seen that Doug Ford yet. Okay. Also, how easily is he influenced by outside forces, I think, is something else that you can draw from that experience. Yep. Absolutely. Well, that's what I was thinking, because he keeps saying if he, you know, he comes to Queen's Park, he's not beholden to the stakeholders there, which there are many, um, and he'll be the one that can like say no and blow the whole thing up. But, I mean, everyone, politician, is beholden to somebody. So even though it's not the same unions and uh, industry associations and folks around Queen's Park that, that are the liberal government, say, it has a good relationship with, it doesn't mean that there aren't people that have launched his career in different ways. And, and who are these people? What are their agendas? And I think finding that out along the way of this election campaign and his potential premiership is going to be an important part of reporting on him. So again, Doug Ford has kind of a long history with the media, both as a councillor and during his failed mayoral bid, he attacked the mainstream media a lot. Jennifer, from your experience, how do you deal with a candidate who has a history of being hostile towards the media? And what does objective reporting look like in those situations. Yeah, I mean, I guess I should say that like I've obviously had personal experience with with this. There's a story about Doug Ford referring to me as a bitch as I as he walked out of a debate near the end of the mayoral campaign. And, you know, the backstory to that is that, you know, this was two days before the election and he still hadn't released uh, his campaign donation records, which he had promised to do. There were a few other outstanding things that I thought was important for the public to know going to the voting booth. And everyone was exhausted. It was the end of the CTV debate. It was late at night in the studio. And I was one of the only reporters there. And so I just kept asking questions until I ran out of them. And it created this sort of acrimonious back and forth. And I think that Doug can sometimes be intimidating. And I, I completely agree that we've seen what Allison said about the restrained Doug Ford. He's certainly that these days. Um, but that doesn't mean that that Doug Ford isn't still there. And I think that like we owe it to voters to ask those questions, even if we have to ask them repeatedly. You know, he has a history of attacking especially female journalists at City Hall. Um, he once accused a pregnant reporter of being lazy uh, and just other sort of malicious things that um, were really unwarranted. But I don't think any of those reporters sort of shirked any of their duties as a response. So and I and I, and I know that the Queen's Park Gallery is a tough bunch, so I wouldn't expect that from them either. Yeah, just to, to follow on Jennifer's point there, I think the question of like how to 
get along or to how to how to work in the context of a a candidate who is can be aggressively hostile or ha- has historically been aggressively hostile to uh, reporters. You know, it's not pleasant. Um, it it makes doing the job harder, but it doesn't stop you from doing the job. And certainly Jennifer and I think Daniel Dale before her, you know, became you know had the had the really uncomfortable experience of of you know becoming the story uh thanks to the hostility of of the ford brothers i mean obviously daniel dale uh, at at one point had to sue rob ford for defamation um rob ford would eventually apologize but um you know that's that's not a situation that any of us want to be in it's not it's not why we get into this line of work so you know you just you 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 keep doing the work and you hope that it passes. <laughs> At a certain point, are we just sort of assuming that a certain point of the population will stop trusting us as media, or are we still trying to keep in our minds some way of maintaining or improving public trust with our reporting? I think that in Toronto, at least, where we are, there's long been assumed by portions of the population that the Toronto Star is, you know, a, a left-wing shill, or the Toronto Sun is a tabloid piece of crap. So I think that a lot of that, like, that has existed before Donald Trump and before the word fake news and before the hating on the mainstream media, and it's not going to go anywhere. Um, so whether or not, as reporters, we assume that groups of the population don't believe us, I mean, I guess that there's nothing you can do about that. I mean, I was it was curious to see Doug was actually like referencing the Toronto Star recently in interviews and like hadn't even done a sit down interview with the star yet. And it was clearly referencing like his earlier feelings about us. And there's certainly a group of people who thinks that we are fundamentally biased against the Fords. Uh, and I don't know if we can necessarily convince those people that we're just doing our jobs. But I think, you know, as long as, you know, everyone is coming to the table as reporters and, and challenging him and challenging Wynn and challenging Horvath, then I think that's the best that we can do. I think it's it's easy to me sometimes to feel like I have to try to convince those people that I'm being fair, but I don't think that I can. And so you just have to do the work, like John said. Yeah, I, I don't spend a ton of time worrying about the jokers in my mentions who are already telling me that uh, Doug Ford is going to, you know, defund TVO or perhaps just personally have me fired. Um, <laughs> the, the, the the people who are, um, you know, yelling at me on Twitter about how unfair I am to Doug, I, I don't know that I'm going to be able to uh, convince them. On the other hand, though, arguably one of the issues in the in the U.S. election was not taking the jokers seriously enough or their power to shape public opinion. Well, I mean, I've said from the beginning, since in writing, I said shortly after Doug Ford uh, announced his candidacy that I thought he could win both the leadership and the election. I I am under no uh, illusion that, given the current political context, the liberals are deeply unpopular and the NDP don't seem to be at the moment picking up steam to sort of compensate for that. Uh, the Tories have an enormous lead and and people are angry about the, the, the state of the province. And I think one of the lessons is, two lessons is, you know, not to um, dismiss that anger and not to underestimate how it can manifest in politics. But I don't know that 
I don't know what about my journalism that would necessarily change because I don't think it's also it's certainly not my job to feed the anger either and to sort of interrogate it and criticize it and you know so I think one of the things that I want to get into in the future for example is you know the the Tories are um, railing against the the very likely news of a a deficit in the coming budget, you know, saying Ontario already has, you know, the highest debt of any subnational government in the world. And that's like a, that's a, a, a talking point. It's not quite a soundbite. It's a bit meatier than a soundbite, but it's, it's still like, there's a whole bunch of reasons why that's almost always going to be true. Like Ontario is just a, a big government that has the power to rack up these debts, which is all just a way of saying like, I'm going to just keep trying to, take conservative claims seriously i don't have any desire to dismiss conservative criticisms of the government but just to to interrogate it intelligently and and see if i can at least push the debate a little bit prod it a little bit into the realm of like let's talk facts and numbers because if it's bellowing about elites and you know how much chocolate milk one drinks versus champagne and pinky fingers like i I don't know what to do with that i think what john said about Uh, Rob Ford in 2010 is also relevant in that, you know, no one knew what Ford Nation was back then. And it wasn't he wasn't being covered as a credible candidate. He had been on council for for many years and was known for saying these like very off color, offhand things in the council chamber. Um, But a few people were covering him as though he had a legitimate chance. You know, Dave Ryder for us was, you know, people like Sean McAuliffe were were going out to these Ford Nation rallies and saying like something's going on out here in Etobicoke. And it, it the important part of that is that it it had reporters well-placed covering the Rob Ford administration, like John said, to know sort of where he was coming from in terms of who are those people, what are they angry about, um, and how did they elect someone like Rob Ford to run Canada's largest city? And I think the same thing, you know, the same thing obviously applied to Trump, and the same thing also applies to Doug now, I think. I think there's still a little bit of that similar narrative going on though because we at at Queen's Park you hear the Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals are such good campaigners Kathleen Wynne can come up from behind and like that's not necessarily the dominant narrative but it's there and it's in a lot of the back of a lot of people's heads and it's kind of implied that she's going to do better than the polls are currently saying that she is so how different is that? And I'm I'm on the same camp as John that I'm under no illusions that Doug Ford um, won't win. Like I think he definitely can can and might very well win. But I think it's interesting that there is still a little bit of this. But but he probably won't because Kathleen Wynne is so good at you know sweeping sweeping in at the last moment and 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 winning when people don't expect her to. Or, or the liberal machine is good at that. So just generally speaking, between the Fords and Trump, there's been a lot of things that have happened that have kind of thrown a wrench in traditional political journalism. Perhaps speaking more broadly, do we need to reevaluate how we think about the traditional rules and norms of political journalism? I think the biggest thing is, you know, what I was saying before about this idea of like, what is bias, you know, when it comes to what I do, which is just like straight reporting, like there's no real window for me to, to bridge into you know, what we would consider consider opinion in a newspaper setting. Um, but oftentimes we write things and we put this little label on it called analysis. And that's really me trying to put things in context for you or tell you what you need to what you need to know that you're not seeing. 
And I think we need to do more of that rather than just, you know, Doug Ford arrived at Queens Park today and this is what he said. That's vital information as well. And it should go in the newspaper. It should go in the story. But I think we need to do a lot more of like column B uh, in order for people to actually have a sense of these candidates or any candidate going into an election uh, and what it might mean for the city, province, country. I agree. And I think we need a lot less opinion pieces, to be honest. I think there, there just seems to be more more and more like proliferating, especially with, with Doug Ford in the running now. We get kind of a, a set of newspaper clippings put together as, as Queens Park journalists put together by the Legislative Assembly that's handed out to everyone who works there um, every day. And I mean, over the past since since Ford's been in, I mean, I think half the book is just uh, opinion pieces about him. And I think that, I mean, they're just as a, as a reader, they're boring. I don't want to read that. <laughs> and as a way of, of explaining things to people, to, to other news readers, I don't think that they're that they're particularly useful. I think, as Jennifer said, analysis pieces and things that give context and things that kind of can get behind the the story and you know let's see what the people in the party are really talking about let's get past sort of these curtains and and roadblocks and and find out what's actually going on which is a reporter's job is is far more integral than just reading what Bob Hepburn thinks about something this week. One very brief digression, I would just say that in particular, the reason it's gotten so thick with opinion pieces is because the national columnists have all started paying attention to Queen's Park I for the last true, few yeah. weeks. And and it's just my pet peeve. And I saw it during the depths of the worst part of, of the, the Rob Ford's time as mayor, where suddenly you know, r- random columnist from Halifax had very strong opinions about how Toronto was running its affairs. And you just like, I, it just makes me cringe because you just want to yell at people like you actually have no idea. You like you just tuned in for the first time 30 minutes ago. And now you think you, you know, you understand enough to write 800 words about, you know, political affairs in a city of 2.6 million. And that was, you know, the Rob Ford case. We're seeing people who clearly don't know anything about the, the, the details of provincial politics who start writing about Doug Ford and what Doug Ford means for Ontario. And I think that that's why the, this Trump comparison is also kind of grating to people that are that do cover Queen's Park all the time, because yes, it's a fair comparison, but it is the people, it's also the easy, simple, swift comparison, and that people from outside of, you know, the, the, the reporters that cover it all the time can really easily make, like Stephen Marsh making it in the, in the New York Times the other day. It's like... Fine, anyone can do that, but what's what's the actual value? The, your, your point about needing less opinion writing and, and, and more hard reporting. I mean, first of all, as an opinion writer, I'm deeply offended. <laughs> but you know, you're right that we we need that. Um, you know, we, we we need bodies at Queens Park doing that reporting. And you know, if the the circus of Doug Ford, uh, well, he hasn't been that circus-ish lately, but. You know, if, if that were to put more bodies in Queen's Park doing the hard work of doing the reporting, that would be an incredibly welcome development. Uh, you know, anybody who's, who's been at Queen's Park, you can go and see the, the historical portraits of, of how the, the size of the gallery has waxed and waned over the years. The, the gallery is, is smaller than it used to be, much smaller than it used to be. And so if, if there are more people doing the, the actual hard work of reporting, that's great. My fear is that we're going to get a bunch of television cameras for let's tune in to see what crazy thing Doug Ford says today and nobody sticking around after the cameras go off. 
I think that's like the most important thing is that we've also seen the City Hall press gallery diminish after Rob Ford and nothing could be more important than having a dedicated group of people in a bureau like Queens Park at a time like this that are able to bring out those stories because they have sources behind the scenes and they understand the policy and they can provide the context. You can't do that on day one. It took me three years just to understand how committee meetings worked <laughs> properly at City Hall. And so you have to have that background to be able to do that type of reporting that we are talking about. I just want to wrap up by uh, sort of going around and asking you any last thoughts on either any problems uh, you've seen in coverage so far that you'd like to highlight if we didn't talk about them, or any, uh, any practical strategies journalists should have coming up to June with uh, election coverage. I'll start with Allison. I don't think this will answer either of those questions directly, but I will say the thing that I'm looking at right now um, as as someone following Doug Ford is how his actual media relations strategy is going to, to be. He just um, kind of appointed his campaign team and, and hired some new communications people from a Christine Elliott's campaign and from um, Caroline Mulroney's campaign. Um, so he's going to start liaising with, for a long time during the leadership race, like he wasn't really doing that because he has the sort of, the, the goes straight to the people strategy, right? He was, he does a lot of his communications through Twitter or through fundraising emails was kind of the only info we were getting from the Ford camp during the leadership campaign. So whereas at actually at Queens Park, we're, there's a lot of routine and we're, we're looking, there's a way that politicians act and how they schedule press conferences and when they reply to journalists' emails and, and whether or not Ford is going to follow those norms or up until this point, like it sort of like seems like he's getting into it, but uh, what that's going to look like, I think, is, is a big question for journalists. John? In terms of, I think, things that have not gone ideally yet in terms of of coverage, um, at the risk of repeating myself, I I would just say that I think the lesson to take from from Trump is that, like, I don't know that television is is the ideal way to mediate election coverage uh, anymore. You know, Rob Ford famously thrived on on AM radio and uh, did well enough uh, in the uh, 2010 election, even with more than a hundred televised debates, if I remember correctly. I I, I lo- I've blacked a lot of it. Yeah. Honest, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't know that we are adding as much um, signal to noise, if I can use that analogy, uh, with TV anymore. Um, and I say that as the an employee of a, a broadcaster. Um, I hope that uh, you know we can find some way to balance that. And obviously, I'm fond of the agenda and Steve Pakin, and I think he does a great job. But, uh, you know, I, I hope generally that we can figure out a way to get the, the real critical interrogation back into uh, these kinds of this kind of coverage. And I, obviously, TVO was not the only television broadcaster doing that, that kind of coverage. Uh, the Queens Park Press Gallery really does have a, uh, you know, a strong presence, and they're not going to let themselves get... Um, led around by the nose by any means unfortunately you know when something becomes this big and all-consuming sometimes uh these things aren't left up to uh the reporters who know the beat best and you know we saw this with uh, rob ford as well where he, he would stop taking interviews with local reporters but he would 
get time on the national with peter mansbridge or you know, or something like that he was on those american talk yeah, shows yeah yeah he would go to like jimmy kimmel or whatever yeah. and you know he was still getting you know his time he was still getting out onto to television but he he was leaving behind the people who most knew how to call him on his um relationship with the facts let's say mm-hmm. um and so I, I i do worry a little bit about that if this really does become that that all consuming circus that you could see the um the people who know the the gallery and know the legislature best and i'm, I'm not even speaking individually about myself here i just mean col- collectively the reporters at the press gallery are you know very dogged and very good reporters and i'd, I'd hate to see this become something that would push them to the side Jen? you know as someone who's like obviously backseat driving and more consuming, you know, provincial election news and not participating in it. Again, I, I hope that um, Ford will be challenged on his record, just as you would expect of any of the other leaders, uh, any of the other candidates as well. And, you know, my experience with Ford has been of um, someone who does not conform to the norms and conventions of politics. And we haven't seen that Doug yet, but uh, he exists. And so I would hope that um, my colleagues at Queen's Park uh, are prepared for that, you know, especially should he become premier. Uh, and also, you know, in my experience, the most important thing, I think, is to stick together in terms of a press gallery for, for you know, covering a government in the public interest because, you know, coming from someone who was shut out of covering the mayor's office, um, that's something that I think shouldn't be allowed to happen and it shouldn't be allowed to happen again. Um, and I think the the strength of the Queen's Park Press Gallery and, and what John said about the doggedness of the reporters there um, can really uh, keep that in check and should keep that in check and it's in everyone's best interest to do so. We have to nominate someone to be the Daniel Dale style <laughs> fact checker. <laughs> we'll do that at the next meeting. Yeah, you may need one. You're totally right that so far what he's said is incredibly uh, vague. And so it's sometimes difficult to fact check. Like I've thrown in a few things he said about, you know, union deals here and there, which are not so consequential, but are still, you know, untruths, if you will. And hopefully someone will or multiple people, let's hope multiple people move in to fact check that stuff. Thanks, everyone, very much for, for coming in and talking to us about this. Uh, thanks, John. Thank you. Uh, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. And Allison. Thank you. That's it for Poll Quotes this week. Thanks again to our guests, Jennifer Pagliaro, Allison Smith, and John Michael McGraw. You can find links to their work and Twitter handles in the episode description, so check them out. Pull Quotes was produced this week by Laura Howells, Emily Pardo, and me, Jacob McNair. Executive producers are Sonia Fata and Stephen Trumper. Big thanks to Angela Glover, as always, for her help in the recording booth. And please get in touch. We want to hear from you on Twitter. We're at PullQuotesRRJ. And you can email pullquotes at ryerson.ca. Pull Quotes is a production of the Ryerson Review of Journalism, and if you're in Toronto, check out our upcoming conference. It's all about covering and dealing with sexual harassment and violence. That's on April 10th and 11th, and it'll feature some great speakers like Robin Doolittle and Marie Daniel Smith, whom you might have heard on this podcast a few weeks ago. In the meantime, we'll see you next week. Except we won't, because it's radio. <laughs> I'll give you my name. <laughs>
sort of play the music over the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>